Hi there. Today on the show, we're going to be talking with Dr. Susan Rich and Dr. Pamela Epley about back to school. I'm Mark Hennick, and this is Modern Minds. Hi, Susan. Thank you for joining me on Modern Minds today. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're having this conversation uh, about back to school, and usually I think that conversation revolves around kids, of course, as it should. But I think in reality, back to school is a whole family affair. You know, you're changing routines from your summer schedule to a, a much more structured day, a, a more structured week, and, and that affects everybody. So what might families, and especially parents, need to know about this time of, of transition back into such a structured uh, structured week? Well, I think for parents, it's important for them to know that their children do pick up on their stressors so that anything the parents can do to help de-stress themselves, whether it be minimizing the outside of work activities that they have for the few weeks of the first part of school, um, you know, minimizing the times when they're taking the kids places different than school or home. Um, certainly people have church or they have, you know, kind of family activities to do, but, you know, kind of minimizing their evening routines to make it easier for everybody. So the parents aren't feeling like they're rushing home from work and having to rush out and do other things. Mm. Now, I mean, for kids that are entering a new grade, uh, maybe even a new school, you know, those, those are big transitions for kids moving from elementary to middle or junior high, moving from middle to high school, or, you know, even beyond that on to college. These are major life transitions. It's almost like reminds me the uh, adult equivalent of starting a new job, except they have to do it every year and make new relationships every year. So I would expect that to have an emotional toll uh, on kids. What, is that the case? What, what kind of toll does that have, that repeated reset on kids? Yeah, so it's it's um, in terms of your fight or flight system, your internal regulatory systems, it's really hard on kids to manage the kind of transitioning back to school, getting to know new teachers, getting to know new friends. So as much as the parents can do some prep ahead of time to get the class list, you know, to talk to them about their teacher outside of school, you know, uh, using the friends that they know the child has from the previous year, you know, knowing that certain kids do move on to the next grade or to the next school and helping them reconnect with those uh, familiar faces, as well as, you know, always going to back to school night and the orientations or any other uh, programs that the school has to be able to help the child regulate a little bit better because, it is a stressful time for everyone. And um, the less you can do uh, or the more you can do to minimize the stress, uh, the better. Now, I'm going to be talking to my next guest, uh, Dr. Pamela Epley, uh, more about the teacher and the school side. But I want to ask you, too, when is too soon to get in touch with your kid's teacher? You know, should you give them a period of time to figure it out on their own and acclimate? Or do you want to get in there maybe before they start and 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 have a conversation then? What do, what do you think about that? What's your opinion? Well, I think for most typically de developing kids, it's, you know, teachers know to do some icebreakers in the beginning and get to know their students. And a lot of teachers even send out ahead of time a little um, 
note to parents, if there's anything that you need to tell me about your child, you know, please do that. But a parent who may have a child who's overly sensitive to noises or overly sensitive to stressors in the environment, let's say they're shy or they're um, a little on the anxious side in new situations, that's important for the teacher to know so that the teacher can, you know, kind of plan ahead and know to check in with the child a little more often. I know a little later on, um, we might talk about, you know, the differences with neurodiverse children or children with some neurodiverse issues. Um, and that's, you know, similar for them. You you might want to check in a little bit sooner with the teacher. In fact, you know, maybe even taking the child to school ahead of time to kind of talk with the teacher and, you know, familiarize themselves with the classroom and the environment they're going to be in because um, the transition is really bigger for children who have some neurodiversity issues. Mm, I want to come back to that because I think it's a, it's an important point. But, you know, let's let's first sort of uh, talk about the baseline kid here, if there is such a thing. And, you know, n- neurodiverse kids are resilient, too, because all kids are resilient, I think, in their own ways. So talking about that typical kid, uh, if there is such a thing, how does a child typically start to stabilize when they enter into a new place like a new school, you know, to all the new people, new teachers, new expectations, all that? In other words, what kind of strategies do kids just naturally use to adapt to those sorts of new situations? I think a lot of kids um, will find their comfort zone within the classroom, whether it's a little book nook or a little corner of the classroom. First, uh, a little older kids, it may not be the classroom because they're changing classrooms more often. It might be a particular hallway that at break times or lunchtime, they meet up with some familiar faces and they might sit and have their lunch or have a snack. Um, you know, a lot of kids use these built-in mechanisms to help them kind of feel calmer in situations where they're uh, emotionally going to be a little bit more anxious or aroused. Um, I think just re-entering the school system for everyone is hard after the summer, unless they've been involved in a lot of camp activities and um, recreation over the summer. It's loud. It's a little more noisy. So even for neurotypical kids, you know, they are going to need to find a balance within themselves and to use internal coping strategies to kind of distract themselves from the overstimulation. Uh, sometimes kids read books, you know, these days with electronics, they'll go on their phone um, as distractions. And some kids, um, neurotypical kids, they'll, you know, sit and take notes during the class and just try to stay focused on what the teacher is saying by note taking. Um, you know, other kids, unfortunately, they'll uh, either doodle and sometimes doodling can be helpful or they'll do things that are less adaptive, like mm-hmm. fidgeting and, um, you know, wrestling in their seat, things like that. But a typical kid can be able to sit still and pay attention during the time that the uh, class is going on because they have more internal mechanisms to regulate themselves. In a in a typically developing child, do you think that 
those sorts of mechanisms are a way of, um, it almost sounds like a, avoidance, avoiding something that is, is uh, stressful for them. So maybe they doodle or draw or, or, or act out because it's difficult to deal with it. Is that what's happening or is it just a way to ease into it in a different way? Well, so I think the typical kid wouldn't be the one to act out or, mm. you know, um, they might doodle just to kind of distract themselves from other external stimuli. But it tends to be, um, you know, you, you see less of the acting out in them because they have internal mechanisms. So there's something called internal locus of control versus external locus of control. And the kids who tend to have an internal locus tend to be the ones to be able to sit still, pay attention, um, stay calm. You know, no matter if things are a little chaotic in the outside, uh, they, they tend to be able to sit and, and be really calm. Although um, it turns out that, you know, the teacher may think the child is calm, when in fact, on the inside of the child, they are actually quite anxious and, um, you know, their regu regulatory mechanisms are not obvious to us on the outside. Um, but more, you know, I think you're going to be talking later with the teacher but uh, or with someone in the education system, the more that teachers can do to provide a calm, sensory, softened environment uh, for all kids. It would be really helpful. It's just like the workplace has been influenced by neurodiverse populations as we've started to include more neurodiversity in the workplace and understanding that inclusion is probably the last frontier in our integrating people. Um, it's the same way in the classroom, but <laughs> the typical classroom is not set up for atypical students is set up for the bell curve and the middle students. So kind of like the vanilla um, mm -hmm. in the middle rather than the kids who are more colorful and may show their emotions a little bit more. Yeah, the the whether it's a myth or not, I don't know. But that idea of the bell curve, uh, when in reality, uh, diversity is the norm, of course, variation is that the norm. Diversity. Everything looks a bit different. Exactly. It's just that, so when we think about our structural systems, and I know we're not really into that, but school is a very structured system. And for the most part, when you talk about a public school, it's a Henry Ford factory model, whether we want to look at it that way or not. And I know public school systems don't like people to refer it that way, but they have to be able to manage the education of many, many, many people. And so then you have to do it a little bit in a factory model to be able to get the information they feel like is needed based on the standards and based on the, um, the curriculum they have developed. Um, you know, they have a limited amount of time, limited number of resources, you know, teachers and otherwise. And so they have to teach to a certain portion of the bell curve. And then that's where your IEPs come in that, hey, we need to adapt this to that child's specific learning needs. But the truth, really, the, the truth of the matter is from a mental health point of view, if we made all schools more sensory softened and we made all schools more, you know, kind of welcoming and affirming 
to all children, it would be more helpful. So for instance, there are easy ways to do it. Um, even in the hallways, you know, putting, you know, soft runners down the hallways, uh, putting some, um, you know, kind of not necessarily foam, but, um, you know, certain things on the concrete walls to dampen down the noise that's coming in from kids walking uh, through the hallways. And yeah, a lot of these things are um, either expensive or they're not easy to clean or that type of thing, but it could be really helpful for kids not to have all that noise all day long. And I'm talking about neurotypical kids as well as atypicals. Um, it's, it's a lot of stimulation throughout the day for them. So re rethinking our education system isn't what we're here to do today, but definitely for parents taking a paradigm shift in their own thinking and thinking the toll that the school day takes on their child, whether they are typical or atypical. Um, it, you know, the stress of just reentering this very, uh, you know, kind of high pressured system is tough and uh, parents need to be able to at the end of the day not be overreactive themselves when the child comes home dysregulated but to put systems in place to help re-regulate the child mm. so now i mean we've mentioned this a couple of times and you specialize in neurodevelopmental disorders so um, when the kid comes home dysregulated uh, m maybe the parent or, and the teacher's didn't previously know that they had a, a potentially a neurodevelopmental disorder. Maybe they already did. I feel like parents know pretty early on, or at least they have a sense of something pretty early on, uh, and and the diagnostic process doesn't always follow that. But anyway, say they do come home, they're dysregulated. What are what does that actually look like? What are some of the signs and symptoms that maybe there might be a, a neurodevelopmental disorder or something else uh, atypical happening? Well, I mean, it's a really good point, Mark, that you're saying that shouldn't all parents know that their child is atypical versus, you know, um, neurotypical. And the truth of it is, is parents don't always know that. So you can't, um, you wouldn't necessarily want to assume that. And in fact, a lot of the children who come to see a child psychiatrist, the parent is in the beginning assuming that the child is developing typically and they have normal typical peer relationships and that they are adjusting well until something happens and in in the most recent case what happened was the pandemic so there were many many kids that began to be identified as having atypical behaviors um, because they weren't used to the norm of going into the school and being a little bit desensitized from some of the, um, you know, uh, overstimulating environment. You know, they were cocooned at home for a year and a half. And then when they were put back into it, you know, parents began to realize um, at the end of the school day, they would come home, you know, argumentative, sometimes uh easily frustrated, easily annoyed. Um, oftentimes the child will be hungry because the um, cafeteria is too overstimulating for them to eat or they're socially anxious and they don't feel like eating in front of other people. So they come home at the end of the school day and they're, they're really hungry or like some people call it hangry. But um, there, there are these um, 
issues that we don't in psychiatry even talk about much, which is interoceptive differences between kids. And there are certain kids that don't recognize their hunger cues or their body signals, or they they overemphasize those body signals. They'll come into the, their um, sort of brain. They shock their brain, you know, either pain signals or um, let's say if you have an upset stomach or your stomach's feeling queasy because you're nervous, it'll come into them like a shock or because their system is so uh, tense during the school day and they're over aroused um, during the school day, they'll, they'll, their muscles will be so tense that when they come home, they'll just, you know, almost collapse um, and look like they're a couch potato and really tired. Uh, for some of those kids, they actually have hypotonia, which is, you know, a condition that makes them not, you know, their muscles aren't that innervated, but they still are getting signaling to their muscle groups but they're hypotonic, so they don't like to move. They don't like to do the PE classes or the, um, like, running around at recess. You'll see them sitting on the sidelines, and a lot of kids don't know how to approach them because if they ask them, hey, do you want to play, the child may not want to play. And the child who's neuroatypical, we, we were talking before about some of the ways in which typical kids are able to um, internally regulate. Some of that is through reaching out to friends and, you know, um, getting together with friends at recess and playing, say, soccer or basketball or just running around on the playground. And the atypical child, oftentimes, they they lack the social communication um, to be able to do that or their social uh, skills are maladaptive when they approach kids. They may approach with uh, a little bit of a frown on their face, like instead of approaching with a smile, which a neurotypical kid would have learned early on that you can get more people uh, coming around you when you're smiling and cheerful um, and pleasant. But the atypical child may not feel smiling and cheerful and pleasant. Uh, which is one of the things that in my practice I try to do is I use a um, a chart of the mood, which I can show you. Every kid, every school typically has one of these in their guidance office. It's like, um, how are you feeling today? A uh, little map. And yeah. but parents. So for, so for folks who are listening to this and might not be watching, uh, Susan is holding up a chart uh, that shows uh, uh, the different emotions actually, uh, that kids can yeah, experience. It's, like a, it's, it's a little... Um, chart of all of our emotions. There are 30 emotions listed on here, even though we humans have many more than this. And it's put out by a um, company called Creative Strategy Solutions. But you can get them online and you can even print one out from, say, just a um, Etsy or something like that because they're, they're everywhere. And it's little emojis of your emotions that you can tack up on the refrigerator so that you can talk to your child about, um, you know, how, how they're feeling and, and the parent themselves, I know we, we didn't really talk much about that, but what can a parent do at the end of the school day to help the child re-regulate? And one of the things is finding a quiet place, um, for the child to, um, decompress with, you know, say some of their favorite 
uh, toys or, you know, crayons and coloring books and things that they would be able to, um, you know, work on. Many thanks to Dr. Susan Rich for having that conversation with us uh, about the role of kids and their parents and their families in back to school. We're going to be right back with Dr. Pamela Epley right after this. Mental health is health. At the Institute of Living, we are pioneers in mental health. And we have been for 200 years. We have an ambition to transform mental health services while co-designing these services with those whom we serve. Together, we can reduce stigma, address discrimination, and increase access to care. Welcome back to Modern Minds. I'm Mark Hennick. My next guest is Dr. Pamela Epley. She's the Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Erickson Institute for Child Development in Chicago. Incidentally, that happens to be where I did my own Master of Science degree in child development uh, more than a decade ago now. And Pam actually happened to be one of my professors at the time. So it was great to see her again. I haven't seen her uh, since. Uh, so we really hit it off. And we had a, a great conversation about the role of teachers in the back to school transition. So we talked a bit about the impact that that has on teachers, but also how teachers can best collaborate with parents and with kids, particularly kids uh, who develop atypically. So here's my conversation with Dr. Pamela Epley from the Erickson Institute on Modern Minds. Hi, Pam. Thanks for joining me on Modern Minds today. Hi, Mark. It's nice to be here with you. So we're talking about back to school here, and so much of that transition conversation, I think, uh, focuses rightly on kids and on their parents, on families. I just talked to Dr. Susan Rich, a child psychiatrist, about that. But I think it's also important to recognize the role that, or, or the um, what happens with teachers in that transition back to school. It's a big transition for them, too. So can you talk to me a little bit about that? What's that first uh, week or two or more like getting to know all these new people, a classroom filled with new kids? What's that like for teachers? Oh, I've been thinking about that a lot as we're going back to school. Um, I think it can be incredibly hopeful and incredibly daunting. Um, you know, imagine trying to get to know 10, 20, 30 little people that are coming into your classroom. They're looking towards you to comfort them, to lead them, to inspire them. And you need to get to know their personalities, their fears, their interests, um, what excites them, what scares them. Um, and that takes a while. Um, so I think, in, you know, in addition, knowing how they how they're going to interact with each other. Oftentimes, this can take up to six weeks just to develop a culture within the classroom where the children trust you. You have a sense of who they are and what they need, and they get to be able to establish relationships with each other. So it is not a quick um, it's not a quick endeavor. I think we need to um, understand that and give teachers some grace that that beginning that those beginning weeks really are focused on establishing the culture of the classroom. Um, as opposed to diving into anything academic. What do you think that uh, te veteran teachers who've been doing it for a lot of years, who've been through that cycle, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 times themselves, what do you think that you learn through experience that uh, that new teachers fresh out of uh, their, their training program should know? Um, probably to expect the unexpected. 
and that what you prepare for is not going to be the reality of your day to day. Um, I think teachers, um, as they're going back to school, they spend so much time preparing their classroom, the environment, the curriculum that they're going to be teaching. And particularly new teachers can be very eager to engage that way. Um, it can be unsettling when you've got the best laid plans and they don't go exactly as you want them to. And so I think veteran teachers know to expect that, to give themselves a little bit of grace and know that it's going to be okay. And my hope would be that we communicate that to new teachers as well so that they don't get discouraged, so that they don't feel like they're not doing their best for the children that are coming into their classrooms. Mm. Now, you've written and, and researched a lot on the idea of reflective practice, and I think that's an important consideration here, you know, kind of when I'm thinking about the chaos of a new school year, and it's almost inevitably uh, chaotic. Everyone's just getting to know each other. Everybody has their own personality, their own idiosyncrasies. So can you talk about what, first of all, what reflective practice is for those who might not know, but also how professionals who work with kids like teachers, how they might employ that in a, in a back to school sort of context? Reflective practice is a secret sauce. Um, of sorts, and it, we really focus on it at Erickson. It is the ability to step back from one's practice, usually after. Um, there's some level of reflection in the moment, but more typically after, at the end of the day or after an encounter, to think about how it went, what went well, what you might have done differently, what it means, um, in a little bit more objective way so that you can use those experiences to move forward in more productive, satisfying ways. And one of the keys, I think, is that while, while you can reflect as an individual, the real strength of reflection comes from being with others, whether that be a supervisor or a peer, that you can talk through challenges, make sense of it, um, and learn from it so you can become a better professional. It reminds me, I mean, of course, of the science of learning, that learning and growth and repair happens when you rest. It rarely happens in the thick of it when you're doing it, right? So is that sort of the idea there, that you're taking a break from all the input so then you can actually do something with that input? I think it's very consistent. And um, unfortunately, I think that can sometimes be considered a soft skill. Um, it can sometimes be the thing that we don't make time for because there are so many more urgent, critical things. And actually, it is the thing. Reflective practice and reflection is the um, is the activity that we have found through research on our students and graduates that helps them not only be better professionals, but to engage in self-care and to stay in the professions longer. Actually, that's a, so this is a really good point about self-care in that, you know, chaotic, uh, and it starts before the kids even get back to school, too, for teachers. So what can teachers do to take care of themselves in those first uh, few weeks of the new school year? Well, uh, several different things. I think um, pairing with a peer, pairing with another teacher or a mentor and taking time at the end of the day, even though days are long, people want to get home to their families, but really prioritizing that time, even if it's 10, 15 minutes to talk about the day, what went well, what are teachers going to adjust for. If something didn't go well, process that a little bit. It's okay. The teacher doesn't need to carry that home with them and, um, and chew on that and take responsibility for that. Things go wrong all the time and we can repair and we can move forward in more productive ways. 
And that links back to that idea of, of reflective practice, of course, that you don't learn from doing everything right. <laughs> You're going to make mistakes and that's okay. That's how you learn. And um, particularly teachers, we want to emphasize that for children as well. Children are going to make hmm. mistakes all the time and learn from them. And so engaging as a teacher in that way really is a powerful model for the children in your classroom. Yeah, to, to really walk the walk and and do it. You're not going in there uh, knowing everything because you're there to you're there to teach. So you should be a good learner too. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, I mean, we've been talking about about teachers, but the back to school experience is is centrally about kids, or at least it I think probably should be. Uh, but I find that we often talk about back to school in very general sort of terms, as though all kids at all grade levels are all created equal. Um, but we're paying particular attention in this episode to kids with uh, with developmental differences or uh, neurodevelopmental um, uh, who develop uh, atypically rather. So I talked with my last guest about this as well, some of the signs and symptoms uh, of these differences in kids. But what sort of special accommodations or considerations do you think teachers can make, especially early on in these in these um, first few weeks of school to make that transition more? harmonious and healthy for a, a diverse range uh, of kids, including those who might be uh, neurodiverse? Well, I'll, I'll answer your question generally and then a little bit more specific. I think fundamentally, there's a belief that we need to prepare children to be ready for school, young children in particular. They need to be prepared to enter preschool or kindergarten. And I think the exact opposite is true. And if teachers understand this, it's helpful. Teachers and classrooms need to be ready for whatever child walks through that door and enters their room. And so that's a fundamental shift in how teachers think about being prepared for kids. Um, I think more specifically, um, as teachers are prepared, whether it be through their pre-service training or in-service training, have knowledge and skills around children with developmental differences, children who may be dual language learners or emergent bilingual, children that may have just experienced um, difficulties, trauma, um, but think about them as they're preparing their classroom environment, as they're preparing the transitions into classroom, between activities. Those are some general strategies. Um, I am a firm, firm believer that putting in some of the effort in advance makes everyone's life easier in the classroom. And so I really strongly encourage teachers to reach out to the caregivers and the families of the children that are going to be coming into their classroom before school starts. Um, traditionally, that's happened in some home visits, but with the power of Zoom, we now know it's much easier than that to touch base, to find out a little bit about what does your child need, what will help them feel comfortable and enter the classroom and make friends and be successful so that you're not having to be so reactive, but you can actually be, be a little bit more intentional and planned. Mm. Now, you know, there's certainly lots of parents out there who uh, might not suspect that their kid uh, is having challenges that might be developing atypically in some way. Maybe they even resist that label or, or diagnosis in a way. But on the other side of that, it also feels not at all uncommon that the parents know long before anybody else. And in fact, they're asking for assessment, they're asking for help. And then there's all these systemic issues that sometimes get in the way. Um, so so I want to reflect on that, what kind of problems that might cause. You know, what are some of the key differences between recognizing that a kid might be struggling early on and getting them school-based intervention or, or some sort of support 
versus if that happens a bit later in middle childhood or in later childhood? What what would be the difference in terms of the timeliness of the intervention? Um, I think that's a really good point. Young children in particular often don't have a diagnosis. They they're they are young enough and their development it, development is so varied during those early years that they often don't have a label. Yet parents often know very much what their child needs and whether or not that aligns with a specific diagnosis. Um, more than the diagnosis, it's about meeting children's needs. Um, so I think the there it's so critical that teachers are ready to partner with parents that they're asking what the parent wants to share about their child and parents are feeling welcomed and their and their their information about their child is is valued um, so that partnership just cannot be stressed enough parents cannot do it and support their children in school without teachers and teachers cannot effectively support kids without the parents input that's true regardless of if there are developmental differences but when there are developmental or learning differences, it is just magnified the importance of it. So I think that we think about special education services, but the teacher is going to have a child in their classroom regardless. So they need to be prepared to meet those needs. There's not a magic fix or support um, if there is an identified disability or not. Mm. Do you think it's ever too late? Uh, either for a teacher or a parent, you know, maybe you don't realize until uh, until February or March or June uh, that your kid needs some extra support, or or the teacher doesn't realize until uh, until well into the year. Is it ever too late to make a difference? I don't think it's too late. I think one of the keys is teachers that are really highly prepared, and one of the challenges in early childhood is the segregation that has often existed between preparing early childhood teachers with early childhood knowledge versus knowledge around children with developmental differences. So the more that we can prepare that classroom teacher to have skills, have self-efficacy, that they can support children's diverse needs, um, then regardless of the diagnosis, you have a teacher that is prepared in methods and practices that are diverse, and they can begin to meet those needs as they see them in their classroom, even before a diagnosis or an assessment might happen. Hmm. You mentioned the importance of, of collaborate, collaboration between parents and teachers. Um, how does that actually happen? How can parents and teachers effectively collaborate, especially since, you know, not all parents have the same language. They don't have the same code that teachers might have to speak. So how can uh, parents advocate for their kids and how can teachers effectively reciprocate that communication back to parents? Well, I think parents parents are amazing advocates to begin with. And so I think the responsibility really falls on teachers to invite that partnership. Um, so often we do see um, an, you know, a feeling of us versus them, which is not beneficial to anyone. But if, if teachers enter into relationships inviting parents to share their knowledge, share their skills, um, as opposed to the teacher feeling like they have to have all of the answers, um, then I think it becomes much easier to establish a partnership which benefits the child. This can happen through regular communication. It can happen through early outreach. It can happen through inviting um, parents and children's stories from home. So understanding who's in the family, what's in the household, what's important to that family. And if you send the if the teacher sends the message to parents that your life, your knowledge, your skills is important, most parents are very happy to share it. Now, we do have other issues around language, and I think that's important to think about 
having materials that are in multiple languages, having translators that are available. Um, all of that is, you know, additional supports that really make those partnerships um, effective. And I think, you know, so much of that is um, getting on the same page that everybody wants the best for the kid, right? It's not, like you said, it's not a competition. It's everybody is, it has the same ultimate outcome, I, I think, uh, in their sight. I think it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago as well, is that if teachers don't feel like they have to know everything and do everything perfectly, they're much more willing, I think, to make partnerships with parents and to learn from them. And so if we give grace that we're all learning about these children and we all, like you said, we all want the best for them. Um, none of us are going to do everything right 100% of the time, and that's okay. Um, we'll learn together and each day try to do a little bit better in supporting the child's needs. You know, something you just said just just triggered a, a thought for me. Um, in workplaces sometimes, you have to learn how to manage up. You have to learn how to manage your managers. Uh, and hearing you speak, you know, and, and how it's absolutely the you know, the, the role of the teacher to, to invite um, a, and accommodate uh, the, the um, needs of the parent in terms of communicating about their child. But <laughs> how, how does a, what skills do you think a parent could use uh, to sort of manage up uh, the expectations of the teacher to access the teacher uh, in an effective way? Because not every teacher is, you know, the most reflective, <laughs> amazing teacher in the world. Uh, so, how, so what can parents do about that then, I guess? Oh, that's, that is a great point. I was operating under the assumption, um, you know, that, that we have teachers that are um, all actively engaging in that. And that's not always true. I think that parents um, walk a fine line oftentimes, particularly if they have children that have some type of disability or delay or need um, of one of needing to be an advocate, needing to be a strong advocate, and also not um, acting in ways that push teachers away. And that can be um, that can be a, a real dance. Um, I remember hearing um, one parent. Um, of a child that had had some disabilities. And as, as he went through school, she talked about building partnerships and that the teachers would, um, you know, would think about her as, as kind of the, the mom from hell, but the nice lady from hell, because she really managed that dance so well. They knew she was a strong advocate, but she also treated the teachers with respect um, and accepted where they were. So it's not an easy, it's not an easy dance. I don't think that there is a to that, but I think being persistent and continuing to show teachers that you're not there to challenge them, to put them down, but that your intent is really to support your child. And going back to what we talked about in the very beginning, knowing that your child is not the only child in that classroom, that the teacher is responsible for supporting all 20 or 30 sometimes mm -hmm. kids that are in their classroom. And so um, I think that that can help, but it's not easy. Yeah, well, but that whole idea of giving everybody a, a whole lot of grace, that there was no perfect kids, there's no perfect parents, there's no perfect teachers, everybody's trying right. their best. And I think we We're need to give people best. a lot of latitude. Yeah. Now, yeah, before I, I let you go, though, I, I, I want to ask you about this issue. It's a slightly related, I guess it's, it's pretty related, um, but around school schedules. So I've okay. seen research on teenagers that times that they have to start and end school, they don't necessarily match up, at least according to the research I've seen, with uh, with their brain development, with their natural sleep cycles, that sort of thing. So how do, how do school start times affect younger kids? Is that the optimal sort of scheduling uh, from a child development perspective? 
I think it's harder to say in early childhood. Um, with teenagers, we know they also often set their own bedtimes. Um, children, you know, parents have a little bit more um, control around children's sleep cycles. So that can be helpful. But I think children are so different in terms of their the times of the day that they are kind of at their optimal learning versus when they need breaks and rest. And so um, we need to be really sensitive to whether children, you know, can do, need, part day, you know, half day kindergarten, full day kindergarten, when those nap cycles within the day may be. And so rather than, um, you know, rather than thinking about the exact start time, of course, I don't think that super early is probably better for anyone. It's really being sensitive to when a child is um, mentally beginning to tire and fatigue, whether they, when they are social and emotionally needing a break and being responsive to that throughout the day. Dr. Pamela Epley, Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Erickson Institute for Child Development. We reached her in Chicago. Thanks for so much for uh, joining us on Modern Minds today, Pam. It's been my pleasure, Mark. Thank you. We'll be right back right after this. Thank you, Mark. We're going to continue this conversation centered around school and mental health. Joining me now is Dr. Scott Hannon. He's a clinical psychologist for Hartford Healthcare with the Institute of Living Center for School Engagement. So this is obviously very timely. Kids heading back to school. How common is it for children not to want to go to school because of anxiety? At the beginning of the school year, it can be very common for kids to be hesitant to go back to school. They've been home all summer, relaxed, not a lot of pressure on them. So you may have that nervousness about getting back, doing schoolwork, and even seeing your friends and teachers. When you're talking about students not going to school at all, you're looking at upwards of 7% of students may avoid school because of emotional reasons, because it brings on a lot of anxiety, and they just decide not to go at all. And obviously we do not want that happening. So how does your program at the IOL help get those kids back on track and really sort of work through how they're feeling? So what you have to do is first target what are the reasons they have for missing school. Are they related to anxiety? In which case we have to help them learn how to face their fears. We may help them to learn how to challenge their thoughts, mm -hmm. but also come up with a plan for how we can move forward and start to conquer the things that you're afraid of. Some students may also be missing because of academic issues. They may be falling behind on their work. They may be overwhelmed. So we have to build them up in terms of what are their strengths and get them back to engaging with the school environment, engaging with teachers again, and learn how to be back in the classroom. Because it's not just about what's happening at home, but like you said, engaging with the school to make sure academics don't suffer. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of kids out there who have anxiety. My young son has anxiety. Mm. And I think as parents, we sometimes feel like we're the only ones going through it, that it's just our child. How common? is this for kids to have anxiety that really needs to be resolved and worked through? Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty common. You could, if you're looking at schools, you could probably see about two out of every 10 kids is struggling with anxiety, um, but we don't always see it, right? There's, it's very internalized. So kids are in their head, they're feeling anxious, but we don't always see it. So, you know, we know that every child is different. How do you tailor the treatment to, to the needs of each child? So you have to start with an evaluation. We have to look at what are the obstacles getting in that student's way. So related to anxiety, we see some students that are missing school because it brings on intense emotions. And those emotions could happen going to the school building, getting out of your house, or even the night before. We see some students are missing because of their fear of social evaluation. I'm afraid I'm gonna be judged in school. Right. And so they avoid to stay away from those situations. Uh, and still other students are missing because uh, they have academic issues and again, they're so far behind, they don't know how to catch up and it feels like an 
insurmountable obstacle to get in there. So we have to kind of find what are the different things that are creating their obstacles by talking to the student, the families, talking to the schools, and, and sometimes even other professionals that work with the student to really get at the root of what's getting in their way of getting to school. And bringing all the players together. Absolutely. So what else is included in the program? So in terms of the, the program, we are going to work on building up skills, and for some students that may be social skills, obviously for some students that, that have social anxiety learning how to have conversations, but for some students it may be, how do I talk to the teacher that I'm behind? How do I talk to students about where I've been right. for the past several months? So maybe skills training. Uh, we may actually have to work with the students and, and get them over to the school environment and work on just being, getting over your fear of being in the school building. Uh, we will work with parents as well. We need to set up really appropriate boundaries at home, like when you're going to sleep, how much time on electronics, right. uh, are you doing your schoolwork, are you active? And another big piece that's involved there is coordinating with the school. We need their input on what they see as the obstacles. We need to create some accommodations so when we're transitioning back, those students feel supported. They feel like their academics are in a good place where they can succeed as well. And what type of results do you see from these treatments? Yeah, so in terms of results, we a few years ago we looked back at our program and just treating the anxiety portion of it, and we saw about 60% of students were able to get back to school. Now, those are good results in terms of treating the problem with school right. results, but we want things to be better. Um, what we see is that we are getting kids back to school, and even as we're working through their academic challenges, some students may still struggle, but we're seeing that they're kind of creating, creating better resilience. They're able right. to kind of learn to, I need to try something different here, I need to kind of face my fears. They're learning how to, to manage it. And then real quick with a few seconds left, you know, if a parent does notice that their child at a young age has anxiety, just in general, mm -hmm. how important is it to really kind of intervene when they're younger versus letting this go into their teens? Yeah, absolutely. You want to intervene as soon as possible. So that's going to be coordinating with the school. It's going to be getting in mental health treatment if that is needed as well. The longer that you go not being in school, the harder it is to get back into school. You fall behind. Your anxiety grows rather than gets lower because your fears just become because you don't know what to expect as you're trying to get back in. Exactly. So it's important for parents to know they need to intervene as early as possible Absolutely. if they notice the signs and that there are resources out there like the one you just mentioned with the sure. IOL. So, all right, Dr. Scott Hannon, thank you so much. A lot of great insight, very timely given the fact everyone is heading back to school. Of course, thank you for watching. Mark, we'll send it back to you. Thank you so much for joining us this month on Modern Minds. Every single episode is available in both audio and video on Spotify. So make sure that you follow the show over there to get a, noti a notification as soon as the next episode comes up uh, and to go back and watch all of the past episodes as well. I'm going to stream the video from each episode on all of my social pages at Mark Hennick. That's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. And the audio only version of every episode is going to be up on all the usual podcast platforms. So if you don't listen on Spotify, that's okay. All the episodes are going to be up on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, iHeartRadio, Audible, everywhere you can listen to podcasts, you're going to find Modern Minds. So I look forward to talking with you and hopefully seeing you again on the next episode. Until then, I'm Mark Hennick, and this has been Modern Minds.